the last hour because that's a lot of material to tell the piece when we were just half was a little bit faster than usual. Um, it's 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 recognizing drugs and the categories to which they belong to and the mechanisms by which they work and trying to keep it as simple as possible, knowing that it's there's a lot of more complexity to it than we we acknowledged. We're going to do something comparable for lipid modifying drugs. The focus of what we use clinically are what types of agents? Statins. Yeah, it's a very statin-centric world in terms of lipid modification. We're going to talk about and acknowledge the other families of drugs. What will be important is name recognition, like what's a, an example of a drug that works as, say, a fibrin, and what does that drug largely do to the lipid profile? You know, which drugs are better for raising HDL, which ones for lowering triglycerides, what's the best for lowering LDL. But it's the statin drugs you need to know a little bit more about in terms of the side effects and how we use them and how we make some decisions about their use. All right, so this here is used to illustrate what? What is that picture of? A large, a large amount of our cholesterol in our body is synthesized in, in the liver. Yeah. And so this is supposed to represent hepatic cholesterol synthesis, which can come from a few places. There can be de novo synthesis, like created from scratch, starting off with this hydroxymethylbutyryl coenzyme A. So that substance can eventually be converted to cholesterol. Alternatively, the liver can clear LDL lipoproteins from the bloodstream and use that as a foundation to make new cholesterol. So that's what's here, an LDL receptor. LDL is removed from the body, from the blood, and used to create more cholesterol. Cholesterol can be converted to bile acid, no matter where it comes from, and the bile acid gets secreted into what? The intestinal tract. Eventually gets to the intestinal tract, and then removed in the stool. A large percentage of that bile acid will be reabsorbed and make its way back into the liver to be used as substance for more cholesterol synthesis. So the three places where hepatic cholesterol comes from, creation from scratch, HMG-CoA gets synthesized to cholesterol, LDL uptake, use that as substrate for more cholesterol formation, or enterohepatic recirculation of bile acids take bile acids back out of the intestinal tract and use them to make more cholesterol. Cholesterol is transported through the body through lipoproteins. It's not very water soluble, right? If you put cholesterol into a jar of water, it would just rise to the top or bottom. It doesn't dissolve very easily. Same thing in the blood. It doesn't travel in the blood without carrier proteins like LDL cholesterol, HDL other lipoproteins are what move cholesterol around. LDL largely delivers cholesterol to places like blood vessels. And what does it do? It leaves it there. And then what happens? You get plaque buildups. That's the origin of atherosclerosis. So the higher the cholesterol, the more LDL, the greater the risk that cholesterol gets to these places and gets deposited and causes buildup which may lead to ischemic events. When we modify cholesterol, that's what we're trying to prevent. 
lower cholesterol, so there's an absolute lower amount available to be transported to the blood vessels. Lower LDL, so more importantly, that cholesterol can't get to the blood vessels. What do we want our cholesterol numbers to be? How about like total cholesterol? Zero? Would that be ideal? 200? So not even close to zero. 200 for total. Maximum normal. Maximum normal. With a lot of confidence. I <laughs> think. <laughs> All right. Well, sounded good. What about um, what about LDL? Well, make make that zero. No. Not comfortable with zero. What 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 helps take the LDL and the cholesterol and move it back to the liver? HDL. HDL. So that's like the good cholesterol. Where do we want that to be? Higher the better, right? Where does that typically reside? D depends on what. The biggest the biggest differentiator for HDL cholesterol is is gender. Yeah. In females, it tends to be higher or lower? Higher. It tends to be higher. In males, it tends to be lower. So a typical HDL in men is 40s or 50s. A typical HDL in women is 50s and 60s. And if you can get higher than that, the better off you'll be. At least we think that epidemiologic evidence suggests you're better off. And LDLs, we like that to be, it depends on your risk, right? If you have high cardiovascular risk, the lower the better. If you don't, well, you know, maybe less than 130, maybe less than 160, it really depends. But if it's cardiovascular risk, less than 100, maybe less than 70, some would say less than 50 is where you'd like to be. But we don't go all the way to zero. Why don't we go to zero? There, there is some important endogenous value to having cholesterol. Like our cells are partly made of cholesterol. There are vital functions that occur in our body that in part need some cholesterol. So we can't drop it to zero. There's correlation between very, very low cholesterol levels in things like depression and maybe certain types of strokes like cerebral hemorrhages. So it, it's likely we need some level. We probably don't need very much. And 200 is a typical place where people do reside. But we don't want it to be all the way down to zero. We want it to be some measurable number. All right, so this is right here. This HMG-CoA being turned into cholesterol. This next slide is a picture of the steps that are involved. So you get this bioconversion process where substances that come from proteins and carbohydrates are eventually turned into cholesterol. If you're not directly absorbing cholesterol from the diet, because that can certainly be another source, and while that can be converted to bile acids and transported by lipoproteins, there are other things like steroid hormone formation, cellular structures, that cholesterol is an important component of. The rate-limiting step in this endogenous synthesis is this enzyme here, HMG-CoA reductase. If that enzyme is not functional, then the ability of the liver to produce its own cholesterol is dramatically compromised. And this is the target of what? This is where the statin medications work. They are very powerful drugs it's stopping the liver from producing its own cholesterol because they block this reductase enzyme. 
these drugs are most commonly referred to in the medical literature as HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors. That's the exact same thing as saying a statin. Atorvastatin, lovastatin, any other statin, they're all HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors. Is cholesterol, um, is it a bigger part of it coming from the diet or more endogenous and like a genetic thing? So it comes from everywhere. It, a lot of it comes from your diet and you can control that. Some of it accumulates because of genetic polymorphism. And there's certainly some populations, some segments of the population, at very high risk for very high cholesterol level. Fortunately, that's a very small number. And then the rest of it comes from other places. The liver is a big source. About a quarter of all cholesterol comes from the liver. It comes from the adrenal glands. It synthesizes some cells in the intestinal tract. So there's a lot of different places it can come from. All right, so. These are the prototype drugs from within each of the families that we'll walk through over here in the next 30 to 40 minutes. So lovastatin was the first of the statin medications. This was not the first type of drug to be developed to modify lipids. The statins did not come first, but they're the most important, so they're at the top of the list. Everything else is in roughly about the order in which we began to use them. Bilastic sequestrants were the first cholesterol-lowering drugs to be made available for clinical use. The fibrates and niacin were about the same time. And then these other agents, azetamide came next, and then we have fish oil, which has been gaining in popularity over the past decade or two. There is a brand new family of medicine that we'll talk about at the end, not on this slide. They're called PCSK9 inhibitors. That's the newest. They're just a few years old now. All right, so if you recognize one statin, you should recognize any. So even though I'm telling you lovastatin is the prototype, I could, I could make up a name and put statin at the end, and you should just assume that that's a cholesterol-lowering drug. There? So I can choose any one of these. And you shouldn't come back to me and say, I didn't know what that drug was. Okay? So I don't think that'll happen that you'll come back to me and complain. But I'm just telling you that I, I don't want to have to remember which one of these. Lovastatin was the first, but there are many of them out there. Now, what do you think is the differentiator? <clears throat> Why do we even have this many if they all work the same way? Potency. Potency. Yeah, potency. What's the degree of cholesterol lowering you get with any given dose? And the higher the potency, the better off you are in terms of usually achieving lipid goals. Because these drugs dramatically reduce cholesterol synthesis in the liver, it drives what? It drives the liver to seek other sources to make cholesterol. It can't create its own, so now there's a greater what? Uptake of LDL from the rest of the body to be used to make cholesterol. So what ends up happening is when you put someone on one of these drugs, they block this step synthesis of cholesterol, and so how does the liver make the amount of cholesterol that it usually makes or wants to make? It takes up more LDL. So you have a greater number of upregulation of LDL receptors on the surface of the liver cells, and there's a greater clearance of LDL. And depending on the potency of your statin, you can drop LDL by 20% or 30% or 40%, or the highest potency statins will drop it by 50%. And that's the difference between these agents. Some are high potency and some are low potency. Just another way to look at this. Lock hepatic synthesis of cholesterol 
this is the net effect. Reduction in total cholesterol and among the best drugs we have available to reduce LDL cholesterol. Now, not just reduce LDL cholesterol, but that reduction translates to what? Better survival. Lower risk for adverse cardiovascular events. And that's what we really care about, right? It's great that the numbers look better, but those are all surrogate measures. They're not proof of anything. Using statins not only lowers LDL, but significantly reduces the risk for stroke and MI and other adverse events that you see in patients with cardiovascular disease. That's what makes them so important. Because we have many drugs that we can use to lower cholesterol, including LDL, but that doesn't always translate into the same benefit. And there are many, most who believe that the benefit you get from statins is above and beyond the LDL lowering effect. It's pretty clear that there's a good relation between degree of LDL lowering and degree of benefit, but the benefit is above and beyond what you'd expect from just LDL lowering. And when you lower LDL by other mechanisms, you don't get the same kind of benefit. So it's likely that these drugs have what's called a pleiotropic effect. There's something else they're doing, and it's probably suppressing inflammation within the vasculature. So an anti-inflammatory effect that can't be directly explained by unique mechanisms, but is likely assumed to be part of the case. So that's what makes statins so valuable. Not only lowering LDL, but that LDL reduction correlates with really good benefit in terms of cardiovascular outcome. All right, so this is what you get for a net effect. Anywhere from 20 to 60% reduction in LDL. That's why we're using these drugs in terms of the lipid profile. And your potency of your statin dictates which end you're on. I'll show you the, a table that I put together to, to sort of illustrate that. There's benefit for other lipoproteins too, but that's not the reason we're using statins. It's good that triglycerides and HDL go in the right direction. You want triglyceride to come down, you want HDL to go up, but you're not counting on your statin to produce that benefit. It happens to be another artifact of, of using the medication. What's the adverse effect that statin medications are most often associated with? Muscle pain. Myopathy, myalgia, myositis, common side effects that patients will complain about. What do we try to do in those cases? Treat through it is what we try to do. Modify the dose, alter the dosing schedule, try a different statin, but do everything we can to continue on a statin because the drugs provide that much benefit. And if it gets to the point where just none of them are tolerated, well then cease and desist and move on to some other strategy, should another strategy be worthwhile. Now what we worry about is that muscle annoyance turning into something more severe, which is what? Rab rhabdomyolysis. Massive breakdown of muscle that then ends up compromising organ function like in the kidney. So that's a very dangerous side effect that we don't try to treat through. We want to certainly avoid that. It's why we don't take muscle symptoms lightly. If they're occurring, we pay close attention to it. It's very rare that that's going to progress to rhabdo, but that is a possibility. So we want to stay on top of that. If the symptoms get worse and worse and worse, we want to monitor for some other things. Like you might be able to see changes in the urine. 
you might be able to monitor a blood test that could be indicative, indicative of muscle toxicity. What blood test is that? I don't think I put it up there. It starts with creatinine. Kinase. Yeah, creatinine phosphokinase. We can check CPK levels, which is a marker of muscle breakdown. And if this is really elevated in the presence of a statin and there are symptoms of muscle toxicity, it suggests that we might need to be extra careful. The dilemma with using this test routinely is what? It's very nonspecific. It doesn't mean that the statin caused the elevation. If you were to, especially if you don't do this very often, run across campus a few times and then measure a CPK level, it's very likely to be elevated. That's simply because of the exercise and the muscle breakdown. So is the CPK elevation muscle breakdown because of some other cause or drug-induced? So thus, we don't do this routinely. We do it when we suspect there could be problems. Is the CPK the same as the CK level? Um, I've heard it referred to as a CK level, so I'm sure it's probably we're talking about the same thing. Okay. Creatinine kinase, creatinine phosphokinase. When you're ordering the test, you're usually looking for this in the ordering system. All right, it's always good to have a baseline so, so you have something to compare it to, but not something to routinely test unless there's reason for it. When you talk about muscle pain, is it like one specific cramp in your leg or is it just being achy all over? It could be all over. It oftentimes is limited to certain areas, and usually the ones you're using more than others. Okay. So there is some inflammation that seems to be triggered by these drugs. It's not everyone. It's just the side effect they're more likely to complain about. So some other things here. Sometimes GI intolerances, and if you see anything, it's usually diarrhea. It's not usually something that gets in the way of patients' ability to take the medication. What about liver function? There is a lot of liver metabolism, and there's a lot of cytochrome P450 involvement. These drugs are all substrates to varying extents of cytochrome enzymes. So they are oftentimes the victims of drug interactions. Other drugs that induce or block enzymes might elevate or suppress statin levels. So they are commonly the drugs that are being altered when you're giving something like amiodarone or deltaism of rapamil, some other commonly used cardiovascular drugs. And that might put people at subtherapeutic or more concerning toxic levels if we're not careful. And some, like simvastatins are more likely, more prone to that type of interaction than others. We used to worry about the drugs causing damage to the liver. When these drugs first came to market, we were checking liver function tests like every month. We were that worried. And how often do we do it now? Maybe once a day, ever in some cases. It's very unusual for these drugs to cause outright liver toxicity, but it's taken 20 years to learn that. It's not uncommon for a high potency statin to cause minor elevations in liver function tests. But as long as they don't go any further than that, they're usually safe drugs to use. So maybe once a year, if you just want to play it safe, we would check liver function tests. But nowhere near as often as we used to. They're much, much safer in the liver than we used to appreciate. The interactions are still relevant, but the stress we used to think that these drugs caused the liver itself doesn't really occur. More recently, more recently over the past five years, is evidence suggesting that when we start a new patient on a statin, you may accelerate the onset of diabetes. What we think 
is that these were patients already on their way to becoming di diabetic, and something about starting the statin accelerated that process. So now it's not three or six months from now that diabetes is diagnosed, it's diagnosed today. But in almost all the cases, they were on their way to becoming diabetic. There were already symptoms of impaired glucose tolerance. It becomes a dilemma. If someone is using a statin for primary prevention, do you really want to speed up the onset of diabetes? You might not, right? What does primary prevention mean? Their cholesterol numbers don't look good, but there's no evidence of heart disease. Right, so do we really want to use a medication to induce yet another disease? But if it's someone who already has heart disease, the benefit from the statin is going to outweigh this risk. And what makes us feel more comfortable about that is they're already becoming diabetic. It's not the statin that's inducing that. It's just unveiling it a little earlier than it would have happened anyway. So it's part of the dialogue now. For primary prevention, it's one of the reasons why we might not use a statin. For secondary prevention, it doesn't seem to make as much of a difference. The benefit you get from the statin outweighs this risk, and it's because this risk is already part of the equation. It's just happening or appearing earlier than it would have appeared otherwise. So lots of enzyme metabolism and lots of other things that can interact, like even grapefruit juice, which tells you what enzyme system must be involved, or which, which isoenzymes must be involved the 3A family, right, because they're present in the intestinal tract. And that's where grapefruit juice, if it interacts with drugs, that's where the interaction's happening. So grapefruit juice plus simvastatin means what? Greater bioavailability. Less drug will be intestinally metabolized, which means more drug gets into the body. How much grapefruit juice? About a quart. It's a lot. Maybe some people consume that much in one sitting, but that's that's a lot. But anyway, that's the that's the risk. There's potential toxicity because more drug is now absorbed than would have been otherwise. Alright, this is a chart. I put the brand names up to the top because they fit better, but the generic, at least the first few letters of the generic names are on the bottom. So what you can see here is that there are some statins that are relatively low potency, the ones on the left. And as you move to the right, you get higher and higher potency. So for instance, a dose of Lipitor 40 milligrams gives you 50% lowering of LDL. Whereas a dose, the same dose of Lescol gives you only 25% lowering. Why do we use Lipitor and Crestor so much? Because you can get 50 to 60% reduction if you use the right doses. That's why these have become the preferred statins. They're all generic now, at least the ones on this table, and thus their affordability and access is improved. Why not shoot for high-potency agents? It's America, after all. Bigger <laughs> is better. Plus, there's evidence to show that the, the more dramatic LDL lowering, the better the benefit. Are people on these for a long time, or can they taper off? Yeah, so are people on these for a long time? What do you think is the answer to that? Yeah. Yeah, this is why industry was so excited about these therapies, right? Lifelong therapy. So if it's secondary prevention, it's lifelong for as long as you can tolerate it. If it's primary, well, it depends. It depends on whether or not you can control cholesterol through other means and what value you place on the drug in terms of overall prevention. There's still prevention. There's still reduced risk for bad events, but it's not quite as dramatic. 
All right, one other uh, principle that comes from this slide. Let's just say that you've started someone on 20 milligrams of Lipitor, etorvastatin. On average, what you'll get is a 43% reduction. You know, everyone's a little bit different. Some are 38, some are 47, but on average, it's 43% lower. If you wanted to get much greater reduction than 43%, what happens when you double the dose of Lipitor? Not much greater. What happens if you more than double the dose? It's still not that much greater, right? Whatever you get with your initial dose is about as much as you're going to get. So doubling the dose of your statin usually doesn't give you a doubling of the effect. It doesn't even come close to getting a doubling of the effect. And that's an important principle because if you're looking at an LDL number and trying to achieve a certain target, you may need to go outside of the statin family to get to that target. Add something that works by a different mechanism and then the effects become additive. Like if we took another type of cholesterol-modifying drug that itself can lower LDL by, say, 20%, and added that to the Lipitor 20 milligrams, you get 43% plus 20%. And now we get a 62% reduction. Whereas even if we went to 80, we might not get that much reduction. So if that's what we're doing, we're trying to shoot for a number, it oftentimes makes sense to use different drugs that work by different mechanisms because the benefit becomes additive. Do you get um, more side effects with higher dosage? Would you get more side effects with higher doses? What do you get? What do you get? <coughs> yeah. yeah, and that's true for almost all medications. There's dose-related benefit. There's dose-related side effect. The higher the dose it takes to produce a benefit, usually oftentimes correlates with more side effects. So. One advantage to say a drug like rosuvastatin is that a very low dose gets you 45% reduction. Well, maybe that's better tolerated than using the 80 milligrams of Mevacor it took to get to the same level. And there's some evidence to show that that's a reality. Okay. Yes. When you say adding an outside drug, do you mean another statin or no. another drug that we talked about? Another drug we haven't talked about yet. So if you can find some other drug that works in the body to lower LDL cholesterol by another mechanism, it will be additive. Whatever that other mechanism is, it will be additive on top of what these drugs do. It's not adding two different statins. That doesn't work. What you'll get there is no more than what you see up here. That's just going to increase toxicity. Alright, so go back to this picture here. Now we move into some of the other therapies. And this is more about what are the prototypes and what do they do. So, if we could give a medication that tied up the bile acid in the intestinal tract and prevented it from being recycled, it would stay in the stool and would be removed. What would that do in the liver? It would increase LDL clearance, right? Because that's yet another means for cholesterol synthesis that's been compromised. It's not as strong, it's not quite as potent as blocking endogenous synthesis, but it is a valid mechanism. And so the drugs that do this are called bile acid sequestrants. They sequester the bile acid in the intestinal tract, prevent reabsorption, and that drives more LDL clearance as a source of new cholesterol formation. These are drugs like cholestyramine, bile acid binding resins or bile acid sequestrants. And cholestyramine is our prototype. 
So they're LDL-lowering drugs. They're just not quite as strong as what you get with statins. And the LDL benefit doesn't correlate with as much cardiovascular protection as do the statins. So that's why they don't get used very much. But long before statins were available for clinical use, these were the first drugs available to lower, statin, lower LDL levels. It was the bioacid binding agents that came first. They were our first LDL-lowering drugs. They are not absorbed systemically. What kind of side effects would you expect? GI-related, right? They stay in the GI tract. They tend to be constipating and cause some bloating because they increase the, the bulk of the stool. But there is nothing systemic. So there are no muscle side effects. If you want to lower someone's LDL and your patient hasn't been able to tolerate statins, this might be a way to go. If they haven't been able to tolerate because of muscle side effects, this might be a way to go. But you've got to accept that the degree of LDL lowering isn't going to be as potent. And the benefits, the cardiovascular protection, isn't going to be as robust. So you get maybe 20% reduction, 30% if you can really use a lot of this, like grams at a time, four times per day, is what it would take to get to 30%. Most people can't tolerate that. But that's about the upper limit. And there's various formulations, the cholestyramine or question, which usually comes in a powder. It's like a Metamucil-like product. The powder, a couple scoops of that into a large clear liquid, drink that once or twice or four times a day, depending on what your goals are. You could argue that if you needed to treat cholesterol in pregnancy, this might be the ideal choice because no systemic effect. Not that we oftentimes need to do that, but if you did, then this would probably be the best choice. All right. Next are the fibrates. The fibrates modify a family of receptors known as peroxisome proliferator activated receptors, or PPAR. Specifically, it's the alpha subunit. The fibrates modify that subunit, which drives lipoprotein expression. And what that does, the take-home point, is that it facilitates triglyceride breakdown. So give someone a drug that's considered a fibric acid derivative, otherwise known as a fibrate, and what you're doing, whether you re remember this PPAR or not, what you're doing is giving a drug that promotes triglyceride breakdown. So these would be the types of drugs you would use if the only thing you're dealing with is a high triglyceride level that requires drug therapy. And the drugs in this family all have FIBR in the name. Gemfibrazil was one of the first. Phenofibrate's probably the one that gets used the most today. So that will be the one I want you to remember. Phenofibrate as our prototype fibrate agent and is the best of all the drugs we talk about today for lowering triglyceride levels. It doesn't do anything of meaning to LDL. If that's what you want to achieve, LDL reduction, the fibrates aren't going to help. So this is really treating the patients who are very high risk for complications from high triglyceride levels, like triglycerides above 1,000, otherwise healthy, or triglycerides above 500 in the face of like pancreatitis. That's where these drugs would be employed. Sometimes in addition to statins, in patients who have both very high LDL and very high triglycerides, because the statins don't do a whole lot to triglyceride lower. They provide some benefit, but not a lot. 
Now, a commonality with all of the systemic acting cholesterol-modifying drugs is risk from muscle side effects. They all might do this. So if you use a fibrate plus a statin, now what? That risk is enhanced. It's a pharmacodynamic interaction. Each drug individually can cause muscle side effects, and now the combination is even more likely to produce those side effects. So when we do this, when we employ statin and we add on some other systemic cholesterol-modifying drug, that's what we get most concerned about, muscle-related muscle side effects. Does that include the rhabdomyolysis? And that includes rhabdo. So now that risk of rhabdo that was like 0.3%, that might be a whole full percent now that you're using the combinations. It's still very low risk, but it's greater than it would have been otherwise. Absolutely. One of the reasons why we like to use phenofibrate as the preferred drug from within this family is because it seems to have the lowest rate of muscle side effects, especially when used in combination with statins, which we sometimes need to do. It's also just once a day, so it's easier for patients to take. All right, now niacin. What's niacin also known as? It's a B vitamin. It's not six. It's half of that. Someone said it. It's vitamin B3. Yeah. And you'd think these B vitamins are water-soluble, no harm done if you take too much. Yet niacin can be very toxic if you are exposed to too much of the substance. So this in words is the things that it does. But what I want you to recall is this here, what it typically does to lipid profile. So it lowers LDL, it lowers triglycerides, and it raises HDL if you use enough. And enough is usually at least 1 to 2 grams per day. Not the 50 milligrams or the 10 milligrams that's in the 5-hour energy drink, just so you can feel it. It's, it's, it's much, much more than that. That's what it takes to lower cholesterol levels. It's the best at doing what? Of all the cholesterol-modifying drugs, it's the best at increasing HDL. Yeah. There's nothing else that can raise, that we have currently at our disposal, that can raise HDL upwards of 30%. So if that's what you're trying to achieve, the niacin is a drug that will do that. The dilemma is that there have now been a multiple studies published. Not that you need to remember these studies, but I'll just write out what they are. Aim high to increase HDL in something called heart protection study number two. And they were designed to look at statin alone versus statin plus niacin. And is there additional cardiovascular protection from increasing the HDL with the niacin? And in both of these studies, what did they find? Didn't, didn't produce additional benefit. HDL numbers got better, but cardiovascular risk reduction was no better. In some cases, more side effects too, but mostly we didn't get the benefit we were hoping for. So niacin, while it is effective at making the numbers look better, it doesn't seem to offer a lot of protection from a cardiovascular risk perspective. What else can we do to raise HDL? Exercise. Exercise. Yeah, what about the diet? Not that you, you should use this as a reason to add this to your diet, but if there is something you could add to your diet that will increase HDL. <laughs> Is oatmeal? <laughs> <laughs> Fiber. Well, I'm thinking about. 
It's, it's alcohol. Yeah. Again, not a reason to start drinking alcohol, but alcohol in moderate amounts is almost as good as exercise. <laughs> almost as good as exercise and raising HDL. All right, the things, the things we worry about with niacin. There are two, there are two forms of niacin. There, and both are available over the counter, but there is a prescription version as well. So immediate release niacin and extended release niacin. Immediate release niacin, the larger the amount that you get into your body right away, the more likely you are to see flushing as a side effect. For those of you that are familiar with like a five hour energy drink, anyone consume one of those? Feel, feel a little flushing as a result of that? That's because of the little amount of niacin they put in there to make it appear as if it's really doing something, other than the, the mass of caffeine that's in there. <laughs> niacin produces flushing. Certainly in doses of one or two grams, you're going to get a lot of flushing. An immediate release, even greater risk. Liver toxicity with sustained release. So the trade-off between the two. Immediate release is safer for the liver, but not so well tolerated. Extended release is more harmful to the liver, potentially, but not as much flushing. So the prescription version, called Niospan, or at least to be called Niospan, is sort of a hybrid of the two. It doesn't get released as fast as immediate release, but there's not quite as much flushing because it is a slowed release product. But it's not so extended release that there's outright liver toxicity. So it's, it sort of balances the two. You get a little bit of flushing, a little bit of liver toxicity, but it's not one extreme or the other. Regardless, we've got to be concerned about either one, especially when it's available over the counter and people can self-medicate with something that could produce really severe liver toxicity if not used correctly. The others are mostly metabolic in nature. Increases in uric acid, so that puts people at risk for gout. Increases in glucose, diabetes. And how many people that have dyslipidemia have gout or diabetes? There's a lot, right? So this drug might be complicated to use in patients like that because it could further worsen their underlying problems. So here we have a B vitamin that has a whole lot of complications to its use if we're not careful. Many different formulations, as I acknowledged. Immediate release, sustained release. This is the prescription version, niacin. And then over the counter, you can buy a no-flush niacin, which looks like this. Here we have immediate release, <laughs> sustained release, and here's our no-flush niacin, which contains no niacin. <laughs> so that's gonna, it's gonna cost you some dollars, but it's not gonna do anything to your lipid profile. But there'll be no flushing. <laughs> so I guess it's not false advertising. Just be careful what it is you buy, because it may not always be what you want. All right, and then azetamibe is a drug that is one of the newer agents. It blocks the absorption of cholesterol from the diet. So it works in the intestinal tract to reduce cholesterol absorption. And that can draw an increase in LDL uptake at the liver site and more LDL clearance. The benefit is maybe about a 20% reduction in LDL at most. So it doesn't matter what you do with the dose, five milligrams or 10 milligrams, once a day, every other day, the most you're going to get is a 20% LDL reduction. But adding this on top of a statin has recently been shown to confer some additional risk protection if you're immediately post-acute coronary syndrome. It's been studied in many different circumstances, doesn't seem to add much cardiovascular benefit, but there is one population for which 
if you start it soon after having the acute coronary event, start it on top of a statin, you get some additional cardiovascular protection. So it's a drug we're going back to as something to supplement statins in very high risk for cardiovascular event patients. What would you expect to be the side effects? Something GI related, right? If it's working the GI tract, it turns out that this drug has almost no side effects. Even GI-wise, patients typically don't complain of side effects with this medication. Now, you're always going to encounter someone that has some problem. But as a population, it's not a drug that typically patients complain about. Do any of the drugs that increase LDL uptake at the liver lead to fatty liver issues? Do these drugs lead to fatty liver issues? Um, any of the ones that work in the liver? And the answer to that is no. In the case of statins, they've been found to be beneficial. So if you have non-alcoholic steatin hepatitis, that fatty liver, that adding statins actually is beneficial. It slows down the progression of that, that syndrome. All right. Um, all right, so the drug therapy summary, and there's a few other things we need to talk about here at the end of the hour. So prototypes, we have any statin, son of statin, father of statin, <laughs> we have cholestyramine as our bile acid agent. These are for doing what? Lowering LDL. They're not as strong as statins, but they're for lowering LDL and they're not absorbed systemically. The fibrates, phenofibrate are prototype. They're for doing what? Lowering triglycerides. When triglycerides are very, very high. Nicotinic acid, niacin. Increase HDL. Benefit across the life of protein profile, but the best of what we have for raising HDL, or whatever that's worth, and a whole bunch of side effects. Absorption inhibitor ezetimibe, which is Zetia, on top of a statin, that 20% reduction, this is what I was referring to when I said use another drug plus a statin. So take that atorvastatin, 20 milligrams, 40% lowering, and add ezetimibe, that's another 20% lowering on top of it. So it's complementary that way. And then omega-3 fatty acids, like are found in fish oil, what do they do? What benefit do they confer? Fishy, fishy odor of your breath. <laughs> Some abdominal distension. Any benefit on the liquid profile? A few dollars out of your wallet and triglyceride reduction. Pretty good triglyceride reduction with fish oil. In fact, sometimes we recommend our patients use fish oil as a way to supplement their other medications. It seems to be pretty well tolerated from an organ toxicity perspective. And so that is sometimes a safe approach on top of statins. Again, the trouble there is dietary supplement. And now what? Not, not that well regulated, right? So is it really fish oil? Is it contaminated with other things that might come with certain fishes? Is it the amount that's stated on the label? Or is it something more or less than that? Are there things in there that shouldn't be in there? You can look for, um, did we talk about this before? Uh, USP seal of approval. So on the label of your dietary supplement, the USP, if it's been analyzed by the USP, will put a little seal and say it's USP verified. 
or certified. Remember what word they use. And that means that it's been independently tested and shown to be something that matches up with label claims. And many of the um, nature-made products that you find in the CVS and Walgreens or the Kirkland signatures, which are in the Costco um, stores, they, many of the products have been USP verified under those brand names. And so that's something you can look for if you're choosing to use dietary supplements. Doesn't mean they've all been tested, but if you see that label, it's pretty good assurance that it probably is good quality. It's one of the few things we can recommend our patients look for. All right, so a summary here. Not the numbers, but the relative differences and what we just talked about. So the best for lowering LDL, the statins. The best for lowering triglycerides, the fibrates. The best for raising HDL, niacin. So those kinds of things. I put the numbers here so you can see it, but I'm looking for you to remember relative differences. And the scenarios look just like that. A patient needs to raise their HDL. What drug will do that the best? And you'll get five choices. All right, so fish oil we just talked about. There are prescription versions of fish oil, like Lovaza and Vasepa are two versions of this, but you pay a premium for that. So these can be hundreds of dollars per month, whereas your over-the-counter fish oil might just be you know, 10 or $20. But you know exactly what you're getting if it's prescription grade. And sometimes insurance will pay for that. Has anyone come across Benicol? This is a margarine substitute that blocks cholesterol absorption. You have to use a lot of it, but if you like eat toast for three meals a day and use lots of butter, then you could lower your LDL almost 15 percent. <laughs> My kids seem to just eat butter by the stick, so maybe that's good for them. <laughs> and then Chinese red yeast rice extract is something you might find down the block here because there's all kinds of things you can buy in some of the stores in Chinatown. And what's this? This is a natural way to lower your cholesterol, but it contains a prescription drug, which you probably shouldn't. So you've got to be careful. Many times dietary supplements that are marketed as the natural way to treat something will actually be adulterated with prescription drugs, and that's known to be the case. Chinese red yeast extract, as it's known, down the block, is, is a statin. And you can find this. Look hard enough in some of these stores down the street, and you'll find products like Blustin and things that are labeled as having red yeast extract, which is another way of saying lovastatin. So certainly relevant for patients that get admitted here because of the population that's in ours. Now let me say a few things about cholesterol modification and then the newest type of drug therapy that exists. Years ago, we used to treat LDL targets. Someone had heart disease, we'd shoot for low LDLs, usually less than 100, maybe even less than that. If they had risk factors, <coughs> Depending on the number of risk factors and what we thought their overall risk was, we'd shoot for different LDL numbers. But we've moved away from doing this because most of the studies that have used statins have just taken everyone and put them on a fixed dose of the statin and haven't shot for a certain LDL number. Whether your LDL was 100 at baseline or 200 at baseline, everyone got 50% reduction of LDL. So it didn't make sense to be shooting for certain targets. So the newer approach, and what we did in the old days is we said, all right, if we want to get to less than 100, we look at what the baseline is, and we match up our statin to get to that goal. Like we only need 20% reduction, we could use almost anything. But if we need 60% reduction, well, there's only a couple of drugs will get us there. The new way of doing things is this 
ACC AHA guideline, which is an update to the one we just looked at from 2004, which basically just puts people into risk categories. And if your risk is high, then you ought to be on high-intensity statin. And if your risk is not so high, but there's still risk, then it's moderate-intensity statin. So what dictates high-intensity? What does that mean to be on a high-intensity statin? It's LDL reduction of 50% or more. So it's the ones in blue here. So it's the same table I've been showing you, but now it's just really two drugs at certain doses that can achieve high-intensity lowering. This is why tortostatin and rosuvastatin are the preferred statins, because they're the only ones that will get us to high-intensity lowering. Everything in the middle is moderate intensity, so we have more choices. And then everything in black is the low intensity. And if you can't tolerate high intensity and you can't tolerate moderate intensity, then low intensity is better than no intensity. So that's where you go. All right, does that make sense? All right, so the newest types of drugs are these, are called, I call them just the K9 inhibitors, but these proprotein converting subtilisin kexin type 9 inhibitors. So there's two of them, alirocumab and evolocumab. What does that mean? They're monoclonal antibodies, humanized monoclonal antibodies. What does that mean for delivery? They're given by injection, sub-Q injection. They're proteins that get digested. So far, we don't have a way to deliver these orally. It would be nice if we could. The good news is that they're only every couple of weeks at most. And in fact, in both cases, we can give them just once a month if we give a high enough dose. So it's not that frequent we have to administer them, but they are injections. At home. You can do it at home. Yeah. So patients can self-administer just like they would insulin. It's actually relatively easy to do. This is the mechanism behind which they work. So here is a liver cell. The blue represents a liver cell. You have LDL receptors on the surface, like I was showing you earlier with the whole picture of the liver. So the receptors pick up LDL, they bring it into the cell, the LDL gets digested, and the receptor gets recycled. That's normal physiology. Also part of normal physiology, unfortunately so, is that some of these LDL receptors will be tagged by these proteins, these canine proteins. And if they become tagged, they themselves get digested by the cell. So the LDL receptor, if it has one of these proteins attached to it, that triggers the cell to remove that receptor from the body, which means there's not as many functional LDL receptors as could be had there been less canine protein around. And we all produce this protein, and most of us do. So none of us have as much LDL receptor as we possibly could because of this protein. It turns out that there are populations of people that have very, very, very low LDL. And one commonality is that they have little to know of this canine protein. So recognizing that, scientists sought out to develop a drug that would block the protein. If you block the protein, there's now more receptors available, more LDL receptors available to clear LDL than there would have been otherwise. And that pharmacologic design came to fruition and is a reality. Block the canine protein, the LDL receptors stay alive for a longer period of time. They can continue to function the way they were built to function. Clear LDL, be recirculated or recycled to clear more LDL. Continue to do that on and on and on. 
mimic what we're seeing in those certain genotypes of patients. What's probably most remarkable is that this was all discovered less than 20 years ago. So to get the discovery and the first drugs to market took about 15 years. That's really, really quick when it comes to new drug development. All right, what kind of LDL lowering do you get? What's the percent reduction you get with one single dose administered every two weeks or once a month? 61. <laughs> like that's the absolute number you get to? 61%. 61. 16? 61. 61%. Because? That's what it says, right? So these drugs, dramatic reduction in LDL, 50 to 60% on top of doing other things. Like if you use a statin to get your LDL down 50%, and now you add this drug to that, you get another 50% reduction. So you could potentially achieve an LDL of zero. It's possible. Not that we want to do that in everyone, but it is possible. So pretty dramatic reductions. Does this confer additional cardiovascular protection? It seems to. It seems to. The most recent evidence and the largest study so far is called Fourier, suggests that it does make a difference. So this is the kind of reduction you get. So in red, our patients on as much statin as they can tolerate. So on average, their baseline LDL is 120. And then you add on, in this case, alirachimab, and it's another 50 to 60% reduction. That persists for months on end. And so you get these indications here. Evolocumab from the Fourier study has an additional indication to reduce cardiovascular risk. That's because of these data here in the next couple of slides. So you use evolocumab, you get a comparable reduction, another 50 to 60%. So people based on LDL 90, lower it to 30 close to zero, but not quite there yet, and you get 50-60% reduction, and you get additional benefit. So the blue line is people on maximally tolerated statin. The red line are patients on statin plus evolocumab. And this is the overall curve on the bottom here. You have to blow up the, the um, the parameters, what's, it, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The magnitude of the scale to really see the difference. But statistically, it does exist. So once you get up to 24 months, there's a 1% absolute reduction. And then out to three years, there's about a 2% absolute risk reduction. And statistically, and probably clinically meaningful. So you get a, a hazard ratio of 0 0.85 with a stand, with a um, confidence interval that is residing underneath one. So meaningful benefit there, at least in terms of the numbers. What's the relative risk reduction? So the hazard ratio is 0 0.85. How does this get reported as a risk reduction? 15%. Yeah, 15% risk reduction. Does everyone see that? Where does that come from? 1 minus 0.85. So the range in terms of risk reduction is what? Anywhere from 8% to 21%. Does everyone see that? Okay, I warned you. <laughs> All right, so you could say this is modest at best, but it does exist. And what's most impressive about it is that these patients were optimally managed. 
right? They were on the drugs of choice that we know produce cardiovascular risk reduction. And now adding something on top of that conferred some additional benefit. And thus, at least one of them, the study that's been completed so far, has now an indication to reduce the risk of cardiovascular events in high-risk people, added on top of statins. The dilemma is the price tag. How much do these drugs cost? Five grand. It's fourteen to $15,000 per year. And is that worth it? Is that 1% to 2% absolute risk reduction, that 15% relative risk reduction, worth $15,000 a year? Most people would say probably not. Individuals might say otherwise, but most people, if they have to pay that bill, are going to say that that may not be worth it. Will insurance is covered if you can't tolerate statins? Will insurance is paid for it. Increasingly, they will pay for it because data like this show that they almost have to. They don't want to. You have to jump through a bunch of hoops to get them to do so. But if it's a very high-risk patient that looks like patients in this study, they'll pay for it. You may have to assume a large copay, though. All right. What's happened as a result of this type of medicine, this is the last thing, this type of medicine um, in combining it with those guidelines I showed you where we just treat patients with high-intensity statins, is recognizing that we might want to go back to LDL targets. And so we've had a number of guidelines or opinion papers published in almost every year since 2013 leaning more and more and more towards going back to LDL targets. Because what this study shows is that now we're shooting for LDL numbers not less than 100, not less than 70, but almost as low as you can get them. And you're getting some additional benefit, not just with statins, but adding things on top of statins. So we're in the midst of some changes in terms of how we ought to be implementing guidelines and treating populations of people. All right, and I've talked enough. I need a little second here. Um, <laughs> so we will do a review now, like take like three minute break. And then if you want to stay for that, you can. If you want to leave, that's fine with me. You could have left two hours, you'll have to find one too. <laughs> um, and then that'll be it, okay?